0: Hello, I'm John Worsey and I work at the University of Portsmouth. My colleagues and I have been recording conversations about the world-changing research that's happening here and how it looks set to change our everyday lives for the better. Right now, we're getting ready for Life Solved Season 2 where we'll be kicking things off with a special roundtable episode on sustainability in our environment, in economics, We're even gonna be finding out about some revolutionary work to engineer an enzyme that eats plastic. That'll be out on Tuesday, the 3rd of November. But in the meantime, here's a little recap on our highlights from season one. If you wanna go back and listen to any of the episodes in full, you can do so anytime on this podcast channel. Our first clip is from Dr. James Dennis. He told us how social media changed the way the world engaged with social and political issues during the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020.
1: The kind of case study that fits very much with my research area was this this example that happened after the killing of George Floyd, uh, Blackout Tuesday. This was formed by, initially by people involved in the music industry, where they encouraged people to change their profile pictures on social media, but also post images on their social media of a black square to symbolise support with the on-the-ground protests around the United States and around the world in relation to police brutality and the killing of George Floyd. Now, what's interesting is whenever this it's you know, I started research on my book uh, originally as a PhD back in 2011. And since then, there was uh, Stop Coney, there was Bring Back Our Girls. It seems every few years, there is a kind of a case of activism or, or a hashtag on social media that really brings back this slacktivist critique, the idea that you know if you change your profile picture or post a status or sign an e-petition, you're not going to have any real meaningful impact on politics. And interestingly, with, with Blackout Tuesday, what you saw was some similar critiques came up, some of them very valid, some of them, I think, problematic. Some of the more valid ones, for instance, that you saw was around how people were sharing these black images to the Black Lives Matters hashtag. Now, that is, uh, was problematic because people were using that hashtag to share operational kind of on the ground help and support to people who were, who were directly involved within the protests globally. You also saw people kind of amplifying and discussing how this potentially might not be the best form of solidarity with the movement, just posting a black square. What does it actually add to our debate and our understanding? And you also saw these kind of critiques of slacktivism in the sense of it's it's a lazy form of engagement. It's an easy way out. You know, if you do that and then don't go out and protest, then what are you really helping, uh, kind of contributing to the cause? But what I think is interesting, and I saw this with the example of Stop Coney in 2012, and you kind of see this with a lot of petition campaigns, is that these moments act as kind of important points of learning for people. And it's not even just the act of sharing the image, but also the critique itself so, in the debates and the critique around the image that we saw on social media, we saw people sharing um, evidence of readings of of great accounts from black activists who you could follow and learn from whether it 's you know uh, understanding kind of modes of speech or understanding systemic racism in terms of our behavior and attitudes This kind of acted as a, a, a learning opportunity and kind of one of the, the core problems with slacktivism and focusing on these kind of low threshold seemingly easy acts is that we focus on them in isolation. We don't see how the act complements other forms of offline or other forms of online activity, how it's part of a, a set of participation that overlap and interact with each other. We also ignore as well what happens before and after these acts of, of kind of micro activism online. So for instance. A little, little bit of an anecdote, but my, my uh, niece, who's just turned 15, she was involved in this. And since, since she shared the image, she's been sharing Instagram stories. She's been sharing posts on, on Facebook, you know, sharing readings, sharing activist accounts. It's, it was kind of her, uh, a sparking point for her to become more interested and involved in the movement itself. And I think when we look at this as a process, we can see some of the benefits that these campaigns have in peop- terms of people's understanding and engagement.
0: A former military chaplain, Professor Peter Lee saw firsthand the experiences of people in war situations. In his research, he's challenging the perception that human-operated drones distance the operator from the trauma of warfare.
2: Another insight is is of someone who, towards the end of, and this is really common, people do get affected by this, but he was getting more and more affected, and so by the time he finished his two year tour, he was getting aggressive. And Mm. uh, by his own admission, I saw him again last week. Actually, he's, Mm. he's much better, but he was getting aggressive. This is someone who was known for being really placid and gentle. And he was a SMIC, uh, Senior Mission Intelligence Coordinator. So as well as supervising two boxes with what they're doing and seeing mm. all the imagery, after a strike, he would have to basically clip out a couple of minutes of the footage. So he'd be watching and re-watching the actual yeah. strike bit. So he would be watching and re-watching the most traumatic bits of every day mm. multiple times. And so all of these images were being firmly embedded in his mind. And so he took himself to the the... MDHU, the Military uh, Mental Health uh, Support Unit and got an appointment and he's still serving, he's still not on the Reaper Force but he's still in the Air Force and And he he walked into the waiting room one of his colleagues that he had flown with many times Mm -hmm. was sitting waiting to see the psychologist as well, they'd never even discussed it, Mm -hmm. never knew about one another but it's not that everyone is sitting there traumatised it affects Mm -hmm. people to different degrees I think one or two are Uh, and they probably have left or will leave. Um, I'm almost more interested in how some people have managed to do this for five, six, seven years continuously. That's almost more fascinating than the fact that some people are struggling after a couple of years. The the key thing that comes out of my research is that it almost seems to be the case that despite rapid advances in technology, the human dimension of war can never be taken away, Mm. can never be removed and I think those who have a fixation it might be politicians it might be the media it might might be some military people itself Mm -hmm. those who have a an obsession with the technological aspects of war are are missing a point Mm. and that is war is a deeply human activity Mm. and and I sometimes think despite this being my personal area of academic interest I sometimes think this obsession with drones is is a first world self-indulgence because Mm. 850,000 people died in Rwanda in 1995 Mm. Um, and they were killed mainly by machetes and garden tools Mm. and yet if you think about the amount of coverage that that drone strikes get in the media Mm. compare that to almost a million Rwandans it does seem a bit self-indulgent to, to focus so intently on one aspect and, yeah. and, and overlook things that, that don't involve Western technology. Mm. So, so I think we shouldn't lose sight of the, the human factors and the human cost.
0: As news of further devastating forest fires around the world came to us, we released our episode on the real and growing consequences of climate change in relation to natural wildfires. Dr Mark Hardiman told us what he sees as the future for the UK unless urgent action is taken.
3: The world around us will change um, in the next 50 years, definitely within our lifetimes, over the next 100 years. And I'm basically very interested to see, well, to ask a number of questions really, how is our environment gonna change? What can we do to manage that change, to accommodate that change? Because we'll still be living here. And also trying to understand how these changes happen in the past mm. and what can that tell us about the present and the future, really? People often think that climate change is going to happen in the future, but we're already living through it. Yeah. It hasn't started now. It's, yes. it's been going on for a long time, you know, throughout my lifetime, throughout your lifetimes. So, um, yeah, so it's something we're living with. The problem with climate change, though, is that I think the, the bad news, unfortunately, might come by the time it's too late to do much about it. So not a lot of people know but you know just to the north of us here in Portsmouth is Surrey. Um, highly populated, lovely leafy green Surrey, most wooded county in Britain, Not which not a lot of people know. Right. Um, lots of houses right next to trees and woodland. Gosh. If Britain becomes more flammable
0: yeah, and those
3: forests and uh, woodlands become more flammable, there's going to be lots of issues around you know. People's houses and stuff. And the thing people forget about fires, it usually it's not with wildfires. It's not uh, the fire that tends to kill people, it's the smoke. Smoke can be incredibly dangerous um, and it can suffocate you very quickly, even mm. if you're not actually being that close to the fire. So there are lots of problems. Um, and I think you know, we are seeing these fires in Britain and they are very difficult. But you know, so there's lots of issues around yeah. fire in Britain. And I think a lot of people don't realise how flammable Britain is and might be in the future. Um, But Britain does have natural wildfires. And we now know that there were fires in Britain long before um, our species, humans, got here. One of my real interests is looking to see how our ancestors used fire. Yeah. Um, You know, we have, our species have been able to control and create fire for a long, long time. Um, But it's always that interesting question, you know, when, when people arrive in a new area, are they using fire? But of course, humans create fire as well. And they don't just use fire in terms of campfires. But we know, looking at indigenous populations actually, people use fires to burn landscapes to drive game out. It's Mm. a hunting strategy. So it's interesting. So we've been changing landscape for a long time, humans. It's not just uh, since the Industrial Revolution. It's been happening a long, long time. So I think that's in, particularly in Britain, we know that, you know, and wherever you look in the recent past, even in the last, the end of the last ice age, we have fires in Britain. Yeah, they're definitely happening and you have the charcoal evidence for it. I think one of the really difficult questions is interpreting that record, how important were those fires? And one of the really interesting things with my research and other research from around the globe is we tend to find where we get abrupt climatic change, which we might expect over the next 50 years hundred years you tend to get peaks in fire right so it's almost as if you know the landscape response to a change somehow involves fire you know it clears right. out the system or the, you know it's responding to something a drying out or a warming up so and even during cold snaps you get increases in charcoal so it's quite right. interesting it, and that's where i'm really interested is like when you get abrupt change yeah what can fire do in particularly what can fire do in, within britain but it hasn't really yeah. been looked at to be honest not in any great detail
0: and Dr. Joanne Preston took us through her work reintroducing native oysters back into our Solent waters. She explained the innovative techniques her team were using and why these little creatures are so important to our marine ecosystems.
4: I work with organisms that seem really dull and boring like sponges or oysters yeah. and things and then when I start explaining to them what they do yes and yeah. some of the sort of facts behind it they're like oh wow I never yeah. knew that 85% mm. of oyster reefs are extinct wow so there used to be the, the the global coverage has been diminished by 85% and that's the impact of humans overfishing over extraction yeah. coastal development and of the ones that remain 15% remains there most of them are in poor conditions it's like the temperate equivalent of a, a coral reef they're bioremediators they'll sort of hoover up clean filter the water you know so and all those benefits that come with that you know i mean the sort of eutrophic green pea soup we get yeah. out there it's always going to be a nutrient rich system because there's mudflats and things but there yeah. didn't used to be as much mud as there is now no there's no. far more mud than there used to be less salt, salt yeah. marsh less sea grasses, less oyster beds and if they're removing all the nutrients, so the algae can't grow, you get clearer water. That means the light like penetrate for the seagrasses. The seagrasses will grow better. And you get some amazing gullies and sea walls off, you know, off Ireland, off the Welsh Pembrokeshire coast. Mm. Also, one of the things that I'm very much interested in the moment is restoration of the native oyster. Mm. And one of the, the things about this species, or oysters particularly, is they're referred to as biogenic or ecosystem engineers, which means they sort of create a whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Oysters themselves historically would have formed these oyster reefs that literally don't exist anymore in Mm -hmm. temperate waters. They've been completely wiped out. There used to be this massive bed in the North Sea around 40 metres deep that was just completely just fished up. We we're going to try and stick these sort of panels all around the harbour to increase biodiversity and then the blue marine foundation doing the oyster project was interested as well so then we just joined forces and so we decided well what if we put them in cages suspended yeah. from marinas then we could monitor them they couldn't be fished they're less likely to get diseased because not in the seabed they're yeah. less likely to be predated on by crabs and whelks what we're doing really is we're sort of basically putting an oyster reef in vertically. So yeah. it's, completely, it's, sort of, it's, it's, it's an artificial construct, but we're, we're trying to recreate that yeah. oyster reef. And we didn't know whether they'd like being suspended, they're benthic organisms, yeah. but they do do it. They've done it with the fisheries. It's like a Pringle tube style stack that you slot oysters in. And it means they're sort of orientated for maximum feeding and various yeah. other things. And we tied four of these together and put three of those together. And we got a cage, a metal cage built around it. And that was ours, that was prototype three, I think. Yeah. The first time we just had nets tied to the frames, metal frames. And so then we've rolled that out to six marinas across the whole of the Solent. Yeah. My undergraduate started looking at the biodiversity associated with oysters mm-hmm. in the cage system that we've developed. And he found 95 different species associated with oysters. And when we saw, sort of, we have to clean the cage, we bring them up, they're just completely foul. So there's just mm. so many things growing on it around it. And so we have to sort of, manage the cages so Mm. you get the water flow through and so they can eat all the sort of phytoplankton, and the algae and everything in there. But that's when we noticed like how biodiverse Mm. and it was and it's probably slightly different to the biodiversity on the seabed but not that much Mm. and it changes quite a lot from different sites the type Mm. of species are found there. It it acts as a bit like an artificial reef but suspended. The biogenic habitat so it's basically just a, a habitat that's of biological origin as they sort of, on the seabed, oyster beds, they die, they leave shells, they're very gregarious. they mm. like to settle on each other's shells. Yeah. So oyster larvae love oyster shells more than anything. So then they sort of create this three-dimensional structure with lots of nooks and crannies and the yeah. calcareous um, sort of substrate is a settlement substrate for like polychaetes and tunicates and various other things. They're worms, okay. they're sort of they're yeah. segmented worms that live in little calcareous tubes. Yeah. Tunicates are sea squirts, there's these things called ascidians and sponges, Um, and then you get some algae growing on it, and then it becomes a refuge for juvenile fish, you get lots of crustaceans, shrimpy things like grazing on it, and then bigger fish, so it becomes like what comes a nursery ground for smaller fish to feed on the little bits of sponges and Mm. crustaceans and be protected before they go into the ocean. It's brilliant. I mean, it's sort of still, we're, we're sort of working out what's the need to model, the turnover rate of the cages, how many, because they only have lived to five or six years in the mm-hmm. wild. They might live slightly longer in the cages. So that's basically the system. And now we've we started off, we've we tested the different densities to see which worked. We're testing if they reproduce, mm-hmm. testing when they reproduce.
0: Thanks for listening to a few of our highlights from Life Solved Season 1. We've got some really mind-blowing stuff coming your way in our next series. So make sure you're subscribed to this channel on your app so you don't miss it.